The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 172 Romans Take Over Judea Although Judas Maccabeus and his followers had won control of the temple, the fighting continued. Antiochus Epiphanes had left Judea to fight the Parthians in the east, where he would eventually die. But he had stationed some of his Seleucid forces in Judea to try to reconquer the Jews. For the next 20 years, the Jews struggled against a Seleucid empire and several foreign powers. Antiochus' soldiers stationed in his fortress in Jerusalem continued to overlook the temple, constantly harassing the Jews as they worshipped. Judas was killed in a battle during this time, and the leadership of the Maccabees passed on to his brothers, Jonathan and Simon. Under Simon's leadership, the Jews finally won complete freedom from the foreign powers in 142 BC. By this time, the Maccabeans' family's territory included all of Judea. Because they had led the revolt and rejected the pagan Greek religion, the Jewish people wanted to be led by the Maccabean family. The Jews remained independent for about 100 years. Their government and laws were made by Jews, not Greeks. During this time, the Jewish territory expanded to include most of the land controlled by the modern state of Israel today. However, as the years went on, each new high priest in the Maccabean family became more and more like that of other rulers in the world. One of the Maccabean leaders even used violent force to convert people in surrounding areas to the Jewish religion. Some of these people were the Idumeans, who lived south of Judea. They joined the nation because they were forced to. They were only half-hearted in their religion. This problem would trouble the Jews years later. The Jews gave the title of high priest to each new Maccabean leader. Under the high priest, the Jews formed a new religious organization to maintain the laws of the land. This group was called the Sanhedrin, which means council. However, the Jews did not trust many of the priests to be part of the Sanhedrin. Many of them had forsaken their traditions and laws to lead the people into Greek pagan religion and culture. The few priests who had remained faithful were allowed into this religious council, along with others who were not of the priestly line. The Sanhedrin was given the authority to decide what was biblical law and what was not. The Jews wanted this new religious organization to help them keep the laws of their religion and their nation pure. But it had a problem. Over the previous decades and centuries, the Jews had been ruled by foreigners, and they had adopted many foreign traditions and beliefs. 
These beliefs were not from the Bible, but the people had been keeping them for a long time and did not want to give them up. The leaders appointed to the Sanhedrin did not or could not get rid of these non-biblical traditions. Even though their job was to keep the Jews from mixing false beliefs into the Bible, they compromised. To determine what would be a Jewish law, the Sanhedrin would first look into the Bible. If a tradition was not in the Bible, the Sanhedrin would then examine it to decide if it was good and if it had been around a long time. The council reasoned that if a tradition was old and seemed to be good, then maybe it came from God, even though it was not in the Bible. The Sanhedrin decided that God must have given ancient Israel a written law called the Torah and an unwritten, spoken law later known as the Mishnah. Even though the spoken law had nothing to do with what God inspired in the Bible, the Jews believed it was just as important as the Torah and the other biblical writings. This gave the Sanhedrin the power to determine the foundational doctrines of Judaism. Over the years, the Jews' religious leaders added to and expanded on laws that were written in the Bible, as well as laws that were not. The Jewish people even kept the non-written human traditions at the expense of obeying God's written laws. Over 100 years later, Jesus Christ encountered many instances of this. A century after the Maccabeans first revolted, the Jewish nation was on the verge of civil war. Queen Alexandra, a descendant of the Maccabees, died in 67 BC. She was the last ancient ruler of an independent nation of Jews. Queen Alexandra's two sons each wanted to control the country. Hyrcanus II was their rightful heir. He had become high priest and led the country while Queen Alexandra was alive. But after she died, Hyrcanus' younger brother, Aristobulus II, fought him to take control of the country. A civil war erupted among the Jews. This war continued until a new power entered the Eastern Mediterranean, Rome. The Roman general Pompey the Great made his way across the region, putting down rebellion and conquering new territory. In 64 BC, he defeated the Seleucids, marking the end of the Seleucid Empire. The territory of Syria was made a Roman province. Pompey encamped his army in Damascus for the winter. While there, he was approached by representatives for Aristobulus and for Hyrcanus. Both groups claimed that they represented the rightful ruler of Judea and asked Pompey to support them against the other. Aristobulus presented Pompey with a gold grapevine that was deemed such a wonderful gift. It was put on display in the temple of Jupiter in Rome. Hyrcanus sent to Pompey a man named Herod Antipater. 
Antipater came from a family that had been converted in Nidumea years earlier. Another group of Jews also came to Pompey, claiming to represent the Jewish people. They asked Pompey to restore power to the priesthood and do away with the Jewish civil rulership. Pompey needed to ensure his control over the region and complete his conquests of the Nabataeans. He ordered the Jews to maintain the peace until he could secure control of the region and come to Jerusalem to make a decision. However, Aristobulus did not wait. When Pompey learned Aristobulus was preparing for war, he became enraged. Pompey had not been concerned with the Jews' military. He believed the Nabatheans were the bigger threat. But when Aristobulus showed that he could unify most of the forces in Judea, Pompey decided something had to be done. In the spring of 63 BC, Pompey marched his army out of its winter quarters and approached a fortress in Alexandria, where Aristobulus was raising his army. Pompey commanded Aristobulus to leave his position. After several rounds of bargaining, Aristobulus agreed. But instead of actually submitting to Pompey, Aristobulus retreated to Jerusalem to prepare his forces for Pompey's assault. Pompey immediately sent for his siege engines in Tyre. These were rolling towers that could be pushed up against Jerusalem's defensive wall so that the Roman soldiers could go up and over. The temple in Jerusalem was his target. It was surrounded by ravines on all sides except the north. So Pompey attacked from the north. The siege continued for three months. During this time, Pompey discovered that the Jews did not fight on the Sabbath except in self-defense. He ordered his men to work only on that day, filling up the ravines and moving his siege engines closer to the walls. In the fall of 63 BC, Jerusalem's wall crumbled from the endless smashing of Pompey's battering rams. Roman troops poured into the temple grounds and began to slaughter the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Priests at the temple refused to leave their duties. They continued to work as though nothing were happening. Many were cut down as they performed their temple duties. Romans and even Jews who were assisting them killed many of the Jewish soldiers who fought back. Many more Jews killed themselves to prevent capture, throwing themselves off the temple walls or letting themselves die in burning buildings. That day, 12,000 Jews were massacred. Much to the disgust of the surviving Jews, Pompey and many of his soldiers entered the Holy of Holies inside the temple. But he did not pillage the temple. The next day, he ordered the temple to be purified and for the Jews to resume offering sacrifices there. After Pompey conquered Jerusalem, he made Judea into a province of Rome. Much of its territory was stripped away 
and given to neighboring provinces. Hyrcanus remained high priest, but he no longer ruled Judea. Rome did. During this time, a civil war broke out in Rome between those who supported Pompey and those who supported Julius Caesar. The territory of Palestine, which included the Jews and the Idumeans, supported Julius Caesar. Caesar prevailed, and he rewarded those who had backed him. Caesar gave Hyrcanus's advisor, Herod Antipater, the title of governor of Idumea. This further limited Hyrcanus's power. Antipater had risked his life for Caesar by fighting for him in Egypt from 58 to 57 BC. Caesar rewarded him by making him a Roman citizen with exemption from taxes. He also appointed him procurator of Judea. As procurator, Antipater controlled much of the tax collection for the Roman government. Caesar confirmed that Hyrcanus was still high priest, but Antipater was officially recognized as administrator of Jerusalem. Antipater publicly encouraged the Jews to be loyal to Hyrcanus, but as procurator, he held the real power over Judea. From this time forward, the politics of Judea were transformed. The high priest became merely a symbolic ruler of the Jews. He had no power to go against the wishes of Rome. Not all the Jews were happy with their new Roman rulers, however, and they tried to revolt once again. The insurrection this time was led by Antigonus, the son of the previously defeated Aristobulus. Antigonus wanted to take back the territory from its Roman rulers and make himself ruler. In 40 BC, he obtained help from the neighboring Parthian Empire and brought an army through Syria to invade Judea. He captured Jerusalem. The Parthians set him up as king and high priest of Judea. Antigonus ordered his men to cut off both of Hyrcanus's ears to disqualify him from being high priest. Hyrcanus was taken prisoner into Babylon. At the time of Antigonus's attack, Antipater's son, Herod the Great, was forced to flee from his post as military commander in the Galilee region. He sought help from the Nabatheans, but they refused. He then went to Rome. With the help of young, would-be Emperor Octavian and the politician and general Mark Antony, Herod obtained approval from the Roman Senate to rule Judea. If he could defeat Antigonus, he joined these two powerful friends to the Temple of Jupiter to thank the gods of Rome and then marched with an army back to Judea to retake the area. Arriving at Jerusalem, he laid siege to the city. After a grueling three to five months long, Herod the Great captured the city and immediately set out on a campaign to stamp out all who remained of the Maccabean dynasty. Herod was afraid that Antigonus might be able to plead for his rights in Rome, so he paid Mark Antony 
to have Antigonus executed. Hyrcanus, the last of the Hasmonean line, returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Herod paid him respect upon his arrival, but patiently waited for the chance to get rid of him. In 30 BC, he charged Hyrcanus of plotting with the king of Arabia. Hyrcanus was condemned to death and executed. Herod the Great became Rome's ruler over the new nation of Judea. He married Miriamme, a princess of the Maccabean line, in order to gain the favor of the Jews. However, since he owed his rulership to the Romans, his priority was Rome. Herod used the first few years of his rule to wipe out anybody from the Hasmonean line who might claim the throne from him. His paranoid killing spree included the treacherous murder of his own wife. The murders horrified the Jews, and even other nations were shocked by Herod's elimination of his family members. Augustus said he would rather be one of Herod's pigs than his sons, because the pigs had a greater chance of survival. Herod was a ruthless, violent, evil man. During his rule from 37 to 4 BC, the violent struggle over rulership of Judea died down. After he consolidated his power, Herod embarked on one of the most impressive building programs in the ancient world. He constructed numerous public buildings, which made him popular among the Jews as well as with his Roman superiors. In Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, Herod built a magnificent port city filled with Roman-style architecture. Under the water of the port, Herod built a massive barrier out of underwater concrete to calm the waves, the first known use of this material in the ancient world. The city also had a Roman-style amphitheater and a hippodrome for gladiator games and chariot races. Herod is also credited with refurbishing and massively expanding the temple in Jerusalem. For this reason, the second temple of this period is still commonly called Herod's Temple. This was the temple that existed during Jesus Christ's lifetime. The development of this Jewish state during Herod's rule was better than it had been in the previous five centuries. Jewish families grew and developed economically and were not stirred up to rebel against the Roman Empire. Toward the end of his life, Herod once again became paranoid over his successors as his sons bickered for the leadership of the kingdom. It was in this climate that the New Testament Gospel accounts begin, with Herod clinging to the last of his power and some amazing news suddenly spreading through Jerusalem. The prophesied King of the Jews had been born. To be continued in our next episode, and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at PCG.
www.thepeopleofgod.church. 